As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Ah, the sweet sound of sports you love from Sling. The collide of football pads. The squeak of shoes on a basketball court. The crack of the bat on a home run. The slice of skates cutting across the ice. But what about this one? That's the sound of all the sports you love. All at once. Starting at $40 a month. Experience it all live with Sling. Sling. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of The Take Cast. My name is Davis Maddock. You guys can find me on Twitter, at Davis Maddock. In this episode of the show, I'm joined by Alex Gladstein from the Human Rights Foundation to discuss the uh, recent major large developments in the world of Bitcoin, also a long article that he published on Bitcoin Magazine that is linked in the description of this show about the IMF and the World Bank and uh, some of their rather consequential actions that have been taking place in developing countries around the world. As always, I love talking to Alex. I think he's one of the smartest guys who uh, will give me the time of day. So I hope that you guys enjoy listening to him. If you like this show, you can support it by subscribing on patreon.com slash takecast. And you can uh, just tell a friend about the show. That's always very useful, very helpful. Or you can leave a rating or review on iTunes or wherever you listen to the show. Now let's go ahead and get into the episode. All right, everyone. Welcoming back to the program, our good friend from the Human Rights Foundation, Alex Gladstein, where we're very glad to have him. We love to, uh, you know, to, to have his, you know, his gravitas, his, his knowledge on the program. I, I count myself lucky to get a little bit of his time. Alex, how are you, bud? Great. I think the last time I was on was kind of at the peak of the, uh, the mania, <laughs> the, the, the crypto mania. So nice to, nice to be back, uh, uh, you know, deep into the crypto bear market, right? It's honestly, I, I have to say, I truly prefer this. Um, I mean, obviously, it, it's uh, not as fun to know that this thing that so much of your wealth is is tied up in is is down <laughs> uh, intergalactically. But I find the conversations about Bitcoin and crypto to be more interesting. And I mean, just the the nicest thing is that it's only people that care. You know, your your buddy is not te- you know your your college roommate yeah. is not texting you about the price of Bitcoin right now. They just they just don't care at all. Well, they are actually texting about like, because I'm always telling them, get your coins off exchanges. Yes. And um, for years, they just, they're like, whatever. And they keep their coins on whatever it is, Coinbase. Sure. Now they're now they're asking, shit, should I, should I, you know, should I take my coins, uh, you know, off, off Coinbase? Is it safe? And my answer is very similar to what like uh, Andreas Antonopoulos just posted in you know the answer to the FTX thing wasn't that FTX wasn't safe; it's that all exchanges are not safe, and you should just custody your Bitcoin um, or whatever crypto asset you have. Like, you know, that's the point. And I think that we're finally getting through to some people here. I think you're right. I mean, I think uh, I mean a lot of people, more people than ever, would have assumed, you know, Binance and and all these places are safe. I think that the the sheen, the 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 very like 21st century. Uh, high tech sheen of FTX fooled a lot of people, you know, Larry, Larry David commercials and, and whatnot, you know, which is it fooled. I mean, it fooled everybody. I mean, the crazy part was it was fooling, you know, who we were led to believe were, you know, knowledgeable influencers in the cryptocurrency industry who spend their entire day looking at crypto markets. Uh, And we find out that a lot of these folks and these people have hundreds of thousands of followers on on social media, et cetera. We find out that they had basically parked all their uh, money at FTX as like a safe place. And you start to realize um, uh, just the the extent to which there's a little bit of hypocrisy out there where some of these folks are saying, um, yeah, yeah, you know, like, you know, not your keys, not your coins. But in reality, they've got, you know, a huge chunk of their holdings. Well, because you can um, earn, what... you can earn eight percent, right? Who wouldn't Who wouldn't want to earn eight percent? Yeah, and the chase for yield is something we should touch on. But just just in general, um, you know, they were holding paper Bitcoin, 
or, or paper, whatever asset insert here. Like, uh, you know, the point is for someone listening, uh, if your coins are on an exchange, they're not your coins, they're an IOU and you may not get that. You may not get those coins back. And, uh, you know, the, the space is vanishingly small. Like, yeah, there are, I've heard not great things about crack, you know, about even the American exchanges, let's say crack and Coinbase finance. I mean, like they're probably fine, but like, is that really, you know, is that really but something even, you want to bet on? Have, but <laughs> even having having to use the word probably is is I think an indicator that it's it's not worth it. Yeah. Right. I mean, no. And I've fallen on both sides of the spectrum, right? Well, never right. with Bitcoin. I've never uh, done any of these yield programs on Bitcoin, but I have with Ethereum and and with other tokens because uh, you know, I mean, it's. In, I, I would say, like, if your goal is you don't care about the underlying technology, you don't care about human rights, like, whatever, you're just in the game to trade sure. and make money. I mean, in a, a bull market, like, whatever, you know, do what you want. Oh, There's, I mean, money was, money. you know, you know the, the Fed, the Fed uh, overnight rate was, you know, point, was a fraction of a percent. Money was essentially, you know, floating around. Um, and you could get uh, uh, whatever, eight, nine, ten percent versus, you know, you could barely get anything uh, on like a traditional finance product, right? That was quote unquote safe. Um, now it's now it's of course flipped. In the in the this is a unique bear market, I think, for cryptocurrency and Bitcoin because all of a sudden now we have really the first monetary serious monetary tightening um, that we've seen in a long time. Uh, certainly, uh, you know, to you know, basically since since before the two thousand seven Great Financial Crisis. Uh, the tightening that happened then is is what led in large part to um, the collapse of uh, the subprime real estate bubble and 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 the GFC. So now we have a, a similarly aggressive Fed tightening. I mean, some people would liken it even all the way back to what Paul Volcker did uh, in the beginning of the 1980s, uh, which which where he hiked rates all the way up to obviously to like close to 20 percent. Now th this this Fed's not going to do that. Um, but you got to remember, we're going from point whatever it was, point three point three percent to to whatever five percent is, you know, you're talking, uh, you know, uh, fifteen to eighteen x increase on the cost of capital. Like it's crazy. So um, now you've got the U.S. government treasuries paying more than what you can get by parking your money at some sketch crypto exchange. So yeah, obviously there's like a huge outflow of money, right? Yeah. So I mean, I think. There, there are a couple interesting things at play here. The first being like, the, well, the number one thing that's very obnoxious is, and I, I have a feeling you will relate to this, which is like, mm -hmm. I was never a customer of FTX, um, purchased my, my Bitcoins via Coinbase. Don't uh -huh. leave them there, move them to cold storage. But yep. if I, you know, if I'm out having a cup of coffee or whatever, and someone asks me about Bitcoin, just, you know, if you get in that conversation, they're just, you know, you're, you're lumped in with with sbf sure. and F, it's sure. they just they just assume that's all the same thing which is just it honestly it is just quite frustrating yeah well this is the whole thing and um you know of course my my point of view um is to just treat bitcoin separately um i know that some people have issues with that but it, it's just difficult like if you're promoting crypto as a thing like where do you draw the line? Like what what include what is what is included? It's just such a you know vague term. Does it include central bank digital currencies? Does it include Shiba Inu? Does it include stable coins? I mean, I just feel like we should be more specific moving forward. Or I've always felt that way. Um, when you say crypto, why don't you actually tell us what you really mean? Uh, do you mean like the top five layer one blockchains? Do you just mean ETH? Do you just mean you know like I, there's no harm in being more specific. And th these big vague terms lead to um, and I guess they're inevitable, but they obviously lead to massive public confusion. Like if the, like this is when I was first introduced, really, when I was first getting into Bitcoin cryptocurrency, I was like, oh, Litecoin seems legit. Seems like that's like the silver to Bitcoin's gold. Like, Everyone bought Litecoin what... because it was <laughs> the cheapest option on Coinbase, yeah. right? You, you, I was you, like, you... oh, that seems reasonable. And it's because I had done like zero homework, but I was like, oh, that seems reasonable. They could have a use case. Like, nope, just kidding. The guy who created it, like, you know, sold the top, sold all, the, all his all bags. <laughs> yeah, sold sold at three hundred or whatever uh, in December twenty seventeen. But you know, I think that um, being specific moving forward is going to be really helpful. I mean, I've managed to uh, 
get a lot of reasonable people, at least at the policy levels, to agree that Bitcoin and stable coins are useful. Um, I've been able to get them to see that. Um, but no, I'm not going to go out and, and bat for like whatever serum token or the FTT token or, you know, I just feel very strongly about separating these things. Um, and that I think when, will in the end really help with user kind of education, like as long as the public thinks that crypto is just like one big thing, then yeah, we're not going to get very far. Yeah. I wonder if, I wonder if we do start to see a shift in public perception now, but I mean, it's it's all kind of technical and pretty involved, like just in general, probably the average person doesn't even think about things like the difference between US dollars and the euro or what, like just like money sure. that we actually use. So asking them to have like, you know, detailed opinions on why well, ETH is so different than Bitcoin is yeah. hard. Well, here's where, you know, and this is not going to be uh, fun for, let's say, if you have like libertarians or, or anarcho-capitalists listening, but... um. But I do think that regulation from the World Reserve Currency issuer is going to help guide the conversation moving forward. And I just attended an event about two and a half weeks ago at Princeton, where the chairman of the, F of the CFTC spoke. The CFTC is the government body that regulates um, futures. Uh, originally, it was under the U.S. Department of Agriculture, so they, they would trade things. They would regulate the trade of things like corn futures, et cetera. Um, so today they they uh, regulate uh, Bitcoin futures, um, and there is it was very clear that he was basically saying that they want to get to a place. This would require an act of Congress, but they want to get to a place at the CFTC where they are regulating both Bitcoin spot and Bitcoin futures. Um, and he was very clear for the first time, actually, I think, because there was some ambiguity over like, well, what cryptos would would count as commodities, right, at the CFTC. He was like only Bitcoin, and this was an in-person thing. And Joe Lubin was in the room with us, a guy, guy who has the most ETH of anybody, and he was like, okay. So I was like watching this all go down. So it seems like the CFTC wants to regulate Bitcoin um, and to regulate it as a commodity. And it seems like they want also the, the, SEC, the general counsel of the SEC, which regulates securities, was also there. He also gave separate remarks. Again, this was very recent. And it sounds like what they were getting at was that Banking regulators would regulate stable coins, so they would basically re regulate them as you know depository institutions. So whether it be Tether or USDC, they'd have to follow all the same rules banks do, um, which makes sense, I guess. And then, like basically, they were saying that all tokens would be regulated by the SEC. Now, I mean, we'll see, but I do think that to me that makes a lot of sense. That would that would clarify a lot of things. I, I think it would help businesses. Um, I know that like libertarian people will be upset about that but it just seems like where we're headed is, is something like that where law starts to differentiate what these things are i'm not sure what your take is on that but that's kind of what i what i'm hearing um but we'll see i mean i think i think that is well overdue honestly it it does seem to me sort of farcical that there are just not much clearer regulations on bitcoin on ethereum on you know all of this like you know disparate um mm -hmm. you know decentralized finance like as as someone who was involved in decentralized finance and stuff during yeah. when it when it was all you know when it was it was free money everywhere just like the ideas on like what do you like what is a taxable transaction like just like all and and it, it's totally the wild wild west and it, it is because policy does tend to move so much slower than life does you know i mean just think of uh -huh. all the things in this country where laws have not caught up to even um you know p perception like like the, the just the idea that marijuana is not federally legal i mean do you know anyone in your life who is not right smoked weed you know well, it's, it, it really is insane and look i think that the world's a big place and you know what like if there ends up being regulation on this matter here in the u.s that like entrepreneurs don't like great and go to india they can go to nigeria they can go elsewhere um but it does seem like we're going to get some clarification there and what's really interesting is that you know since the last time we spoke i think which was about a year ago we've also seen the complete evolution of ethereum the second largest cryptocurrency or, or second or third depending on i guess tether but um sure basically like completely changing the way it works um from requiring an exogenous external input from electricity in, in, to... in a very in a very world economic forum approved way well i mean yeah to have green you know let's say green 
green uh, greener is what they would say way where the uh, uh, coin holders determine the ledger. Um, and what's interesting here is that for a long time, people were saying, well, Ethereum would, would, is sort of the same as Bitcoin. They're both kind of commodities or whatever. And they were basically saying that maybe ETH would get kind of grandfathered in, even though clearly it had like a pre-sale. Uh, like that was like well well documented. Um, people were basically saying, well, it happened so long ago that maybe like, you know, that would be grandfathered in. Okay, well, that's one thing if it was, was going to stay a proof of work coin forever. But all of a sudden, okay, now it's a proof of stake coin where the fundamental elementary way that it works is by providing a yield service. So this is interesting, right? So I'm just like curious to see how this plays out. Like I find it really hard to believe you can claim that this thing is a commodity when it literally requires, uh, like it has a financial product inside that gives people yield. Like, so I think, so we'll see. I think you and I disagree on this because I, I tend to believe the idea that when it gets to a policy level, when it gets to uh -huh. something with this big of a market cap, uh, I mean, the Ethereum Foundation and and the related backers, you know, huge Ethereum bag holders. These are like mm -hmm. pretty, I would imagine these are going to be pretty politically powerful people. I mean, look at yeah. what Sam Bankman-Fried was doing before mm -hmm. it, his whole card came tumbling down. I think it was very clearly heading in that direction where Ethereum was going to kind of get grandfathered in right and it was going to be even mm -hmm. centralized tokens that got the short shrift yeah well that's what i'm saying i think pre-merge I, I think that's where it was headed i just think the merge has been very uh i mean it happened a lot of people didn't a lot of bitcoiners didn't think it was going to happen um yeah. ha happens and now we have i mean just to be yeah i mean we have a coin that like requires essentially a, a yield farming thing is like at the heart of what it requires to move forward to validate um it requires people to stake and this the incentive to do so is 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 provided in the terms of, of and is and is is uh not very transparent right is very right. Is, is very opaque so, you know yeah so i'm just i'm as we look into the 2023 i'm curious to see what happens there i'm curious to see how the eth community which i do agree like is most similar to the bitcoin community in certain ways like a lot of these folks could could be working at Microsoft or whatever Google, and they decided to work at ETH. And a lot of them don't have giant bags. These some of these devs, right? So they they do believe in this thing, right? I, in that sense, I think it's like more similar, right? Of all the different crypto communities, I, I think there's major differences in, in terms of like, for example, fiat money versus not fiat money, and uh, you know, you know, move fast, break things versus don't 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 you know don't don't. Uh, uh, fix it if it's not broken, all these things. But generally speaking, it's kind of maybe you could say the closest. And how are they going to grapple with this? Because now you've got a situation where um, we don't know when people can unstake. Uh, it's sort of unclear. It's, it's very we'll messy. Yeah. Well, maybe they say March and we'll see. I mean, but clearly, like, I mean, it makes sense that when people are able to unstake, they're going to dump some of those coins. And I, I, obviously, you have a, a tension between the devs who want to do what they want to do and like let's say bag holders right bag holders, right may want may want that to be delayed for a little while during this crazy bear market right so that'll be curious to see and also you know look for me it's all about the reason i like bitcoin is incentives like it doesn't require altruism to work it's like everybody's self-interest powers the thing forward it's like really brute level when you look at it and um now it's good eat, good lesson like, in building anything is to not not require the system you're building to require trust or to require people to do the right thing yeah so we have this issue in ethereum which is certainly like um let's say looming it's not like there's censorship today but there's this website mevwatch.info you can go to obviously and you can see that um because of the way staking has worked in terms of a lot of the people who or a lot of the institutions that actually own the most uh, ETH and obviously some of it is a lot of that is like on behalf of somebody else, but like institutions like Coinbase, Kraken, etc., they're they're regulated U.S. institutions and they will absolutely follow U.S. sort of um, OFAC blacklists, right? So you can go to this website and you can actually see over the last few months it's it's like moved it, it's sort of it's sort of like gone between sixty percent and seventy five percent of all of the. Uh, transactions in at the base layer of ETH have been like OFAC compliant, let's say. Um, and there's obviously like a lot of concern around this. People are trying to figure it out. And one of the solutions I saw, well, rather the only solution I really saw promoted so far was basically a bunch of people saying, you know, I think Vitalik even weighed in on this. And 
it, but it requires like people to like make less money. Like, and I just feel like that's not a great incentive. Like, like in the end, I don't think people are going to be like willing to like, you know, take a haircut to like keep the system's values alive. I, 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 uh, I don't know. So we're, no, I would really say, I would say <laughs> the opposite. I would say that by right. and large, a lot of the people that buy own use Ethereum for whatever they're using it for, um, don't actually care about censorship and they would mm -hmm. maybe even prefer to be the, uh, the censorship chain, the chain that a comp a corporation could use because they know it's all above board. Do you ever read? Do you ever read this guy Arthur Hayes? Uh, yes, yes, yeah, I'm familiar yeah, with him. He's great. He has these like long. I mean, well, he's been under essentially like uh, uh, you know, sort of like a parole for a little while. Uh, this is uh one of the Bitmex founders, but he writes beautifully. And I think there was this idea that like, well, regardless of monetary policy, ETH was going to pump this year because of the merge. This was essentially this. A lot of these folks thought this way, and obviously, we're just seeing that's not the case. Like, I was I was thinking for a long time that. Like, like even even a compliant ETH could still be really valuable because what a lot of people wanted it for anyway would be you know they'd be fine with that. Um, but I'm not sure if that's going to pan out. So anyway, I've been looking at that. Obviously, really interesting. I have been looking at the FTX drama. My main takeaway from FTX is that you know you had the media like, and I say this like generally speaking, right and left wing media. They were pretty kind to him until it collapsed. Like they were, let's say, pretty generous to him, um, almost to a fault. Uh, and I think that's how we need to judge everybody, whether it be crypto influencers, the media. Like, let's see what you were saying about FTX before the collapse. It's, of course, easy now to say, guy's a crook and whatever. But um, what the crazy part was just how, I mean, if you read the the post, I think it's been taken down, but uh, the Sequoia Capital. The Sequoia Capital they, was the worst. <laughs> why, they, why they invested in him. But there was also like, I mean, the dude was like being feted on all kinds of like establishment podcasts. And sure, they were like, mm, I'm not sure. But but like the point is they were giving him the credibility on this idea that he was, they basically helped him create this narrative that yes, he was in it to just make a lot of money, but he was going to give it all away and therefore it made it fine, right? And um, the connection to the effective altruism movement was really milked uh, to, to, to great effect. Yeah, what, and, what do you think about effective altruism? I mean, I, I'm pretty, uh, like my, my whole thing is you can't experience, like expect people to be altruistic and, and a lot of altruistic people are, are doing things for ulterior motives. Right. Um, but I, I just, so I'm just curious your perspective. Well, the, I mean, the EA movement is very specific. If you go to like a website, like give well or something, it'll, it'll give you an idea of what they fund, but their whole point was to like, say in any given how much can you really do with a dollar and they're really interested in like mathematically sort of proving that you know this charity will do more than this charity based on like one dollar like it'll it'll maximize the 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 impact right um that's the whole point of the ea movement there, there there's also there's a whole bunch of other threads that are packed in there I, i've always been skeptical of the ea movement generally because it doesn't they never they would never recommend to you that you support things like free speech or civil liberties or civil rights. Like apparently they can't quantify them or something, but this leads them to, 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 to recommend projects which ignore civil liberties, free speech, human rights, like, especially in the developing world, which I've always found kind of problematic. Um, they've been kind of like happy to work with dictators as long as, you know, you could sort of get more mosquito nets out there. And I, I just think that's problematic because what ends up happening in those countries is that those, those nets get, either thrown away or they, there's corruption and they get upsold, things like that. So I had, I was like a longtime critic of the EA movement. Um, I'm not sure. It's not really that relevant here. The point is that like SPF clearly cloaked himself in this thing, which was broadly popular and it was fascinating to see. And I think it's an indictment on our, on our industry um, that, that he was given so much cr credibility and that Tony Blair and Bill Clinton were out there, you know, going to his conference and all that stuff. And it's, it's and an indictment on, you know, I mean, the for for the conspiracy theorists among us, you know, it's it's an indictment on legacy media. Yeah, it's an indictment on Western governments. You know, like it, it, it uh, you know, very very few people. Uh, I mean, I guess the the, the Bitcoin maxis are really the only people that, uh, you know, come out the the Sam thing well, on the right side. Well, the ones, well, a lot of. Bitcoin maximalists are virtue signaling, but but there are there are there are a lot of them who yes they they just were storing their keys at home and 
they've just been observers the whole time watching this thing. That's that's certainly the point of of having a Bitcoin only focus. But the but what I'm getting at is that um yeah, now of course they're gonna throw the book at him. He's in this horrible prison in the Bahamas. Uh you know, he probably one would hope he gets life, like, you know, he had a million depositors or whatever, lost billions of dollars. So he should pay the price. But the thing is, like, this is what it took because, I mean, there's been so many scams. I mean, you guys, you got these three arrows capital guys out there just like hanging out in some tropical location. Like, like up until this point, like generally speaking, like crypto scam, crypto scammers, like didn't really get punished. Like, the, you know, there were slaps on the yeah. wrist here or there. But like, remember all those like 2017 ICOs? Like, I mean, what what happened? <laughs> like they, they basically stole all these people's Bitcoin and ETH and uh, nothing happened. So there was like a legacy of non-enforcement um, anywhere. So um, I guess this is what it takes. huh? Um, so, so we'll see moving forward. Um, but I do commiserate with people who are saying that in general, there have been special exceptions for this guy. Um, and, and my focus has been on before he got it, before everything collapsed. Like it was just insane to me, the narrative that the media helped create. And of course, like if you read there, even after the collapse, there was this like New York times profile of him, which was pretty generous. I mean, yeah. it, 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 and like they would, and you know, as a Bitcoiner, like they never would write anything about Bitcoin. That's not nasty. So it was amazing to me that to see this dichotomy where they're, they've been willing to like, give the crypto scammers like a benefit of the doubt and they've always been nasty against bitcoin so that's something obviously that's interesting interesting to note um but we have we have this moment here where uh, i think a lot of people are going to take self-custody more seriously my charity we self-custody we use multi-sig to do that i'd really recommend any organizations businesses to start thinking about this there are great companies out there that help you do this whether it be casa or unchained I know Casa just launched an ETH product as well. So yeah, my my um, best my best friend in real life is a huge Bitcoin maxi, like way way yeah. Bitcoin maxi, and he was like, "No, mm -hmm. I'm done with Casa. They're they're adding ETH as an option. <laughs> I'm done. I'm doing I'm doing yeah. something else." I'm I mean, look, I, it is what it is. But the point is that there are options out there, um, and you should think about it. Uh, if you don't want to self custody at home yourself, you can use one of these collaborative custody solutions, and it's really cool. They basically set up a two of three or a three of five. What that just means is you have like three three devices or five devices, which are either phones or you or USB key type ledgers, and you just keep them in different jurisdictions or different places. Um, and you only need three of five or two of three to make a transaction. And Casa or Unchained holds the holds one key, so they can't move your money. Um, but if you lose one or two or whatever, or a couple people aren't online to do something, they they can be one of the signers. So this is such a cool thing. So I think. People should think about it because we're, you know, look, we, we're coming from a bull market where people were like, screw it, let's put it on BlockFi. And I'll be honest, like, you know, groups like ours were, were even thinking about that at the time. We ultimately decided, you know, that it was just safer to self-custody. But certainly, you know, when, you, when you're an institution or a business and you got all this Bitcoin on your balance sheet, it's like, Oh, let's put some to work, you know. Yeah, it's and, very it's very alluring, right? Eight percent risk free. Let's just let's just make this extra money. Or, or what even four percent if 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 you couldn't get anything else to pay you more than two, right? So I understand that, but I just think moving forward, this decade's gonna be pretty chaotic. I think you want to self-custody nearly all of your Bitcoin. I mean, and I, I think that if we can just get people to do that, um, that would be huge. I've um to me the big theme. Uh, right now in the industry is global adoption. Like I, I, I visited India in November and I just got back from a week in West Africa. And um, I mean, the stuff I've seen is just not in the news. Like people just don't understand. Like the Africa event was unbelievable. I went to this thing called the Africa Bitcoin conference. My organization was happy to sponsor. Um, it was, it was, it was organized by a Togolese democracy advocate, which is really cool because I, look, I've been to a, like obviously I'm a big Bitcoiner. I love going to the Bitcoin conferences. But when when a conference is 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 sponsored by a company, it just has a different feel to it. It's got a lot of marketing stuff. Feels corporate. -y. Yeah. This was like like a completely based like activist um, who is like fighting against the French colonial currency and stuff like that. And her whole three generations of her family have been fighting against colonialism and dictatorship. And she has a very different perspective on what Bitcoin is and brings to the table. So she organizes this conference. 
in their opening remarks is talking about how the banking system is colonial in Africa. And it's true. And it's fucked. I mean, it's got, there's 41 central banks in Africa. None of them can communicate with each other. Uh, it's very difficult to get any money in and out from the outside world. And the whole system is basically set up so that Africans will fail. I mean, that's kind of like the point. Um, right. In general, cross-border payments, they weren't built to like help connect you to your fellow citizen. They were they were built to to take a piece out of the middle. Like they were literally built to, 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 to be intermediaries so that someone could take a slice off what you want to send to your family. Like that's what cross-border payments are and that's how they were built. And the current kind of capitalist scheme makes it so that there's these monopolies and that they can like continue to raise prices, which is crazy. So you got these folks out there um, saying, let's, let's, let's build on Bitcoin. Let's build cross-border payments on Bitcoin. Let's build savings stuff on Bitcoin. It's hugely inspiring. And I met, I mean, I met Africans from like 30 countries. I was so shocked, uh, uh, staggered. Like I met, I met a guy from Mogadishu from Somalia who was running a business that was doing 30 million in revenue or something every month. Like, he has 30,000 clients in Somalia who receive, you know, money from abroad, uh, including 6,000 people who are refugees in Kenya. Uh, I met a dude from Somaliland, from uh, Cameroon in a conflict zone, from the DRC. Like, it's just crazy. So in some of the world's, like, literally Somalia, DRC, Cameroon, you've got thriving Bitcoin communities and entrepreneurs. So I, I was really blown away by that. And I, I just, you would never know that if you, if you read, if you just kind of looked at like, Yeah, if you read the Wall kind of, Street Journal. Yeah, if you're just like following crypto news, like you would just never know this is happening. It's like this great hidden revolution and it's um, really cool. So I'm focusing on that. We're going to be making grants and trying to support basically Bitcoin stuff in Latin America, Sub-Saharan Africa, the Middle East, South Asia, and Southeast Asia. I, I think each of these five places are, I mean, Bitcoin and cryptocurrency usage in particular, Bitcoin and, and, and stablecoin usage is, is just exploding across all five of these areas. Um, and so are they reason. using Bitcoin as a payment layer or are they using stable coins? Like what, like yeah. how are, how are the transactions going? I mean, I think that, look, there's a small group of like hardcore Bitcoiners in every country or in every sure, place sure, sure. That, like that, like that they're like, whatever, fiat's evil. And and I agree to, ex to an extent, but it's like um, uh, they can afford to, or they've made the personal sacrifices so that they can live in Bitcoin. And that's, I think, admirable, cool, but like, it's not for everybody. Um, so the vast majority that I met were using Bitcoin uh, uh, as, as a, basically like uh, as a, as a bridge. So for example, a bridge between two fiat currencies. So people in Nigeria, uh, clients and family in America, instead of using Western Union or whatever, uh, you can't even use TransferWise because that got kicked out of Nigeria. So there's like vanishingly small fiat rails to get value across from America to Nigeria. Instead of dealing with all that nonsense paperwork fees, you can just send Bitcoin. And, and then there's like this huge market in Nigeria where it's really easy to exchange. And I think what's amazing is people forget, like a lot of these countries have two exchange rates. So currently, for example, in Nigeria, there's like, you know, the, the, the street rate is like 600 something Naira to the dollar. Uh, your dollar will get you like 660 Naira if you, if you use the street rate, like quote unquote black market rate. But the official rate is like 400 something. So it's just the same thing in Cuba and so many of these other Argentina so many other countries. So if you use like, if there isn't an official wire service and you use it, you're getting like ripped off like massively. So the cool part about using Bitcoin for cross-border payments is it get, lets you get the real rate of exchange, which really helps the person on the other side. So overwhelmingly, I was seeing people use it for, yeah, for cross-border payments, for commerce. Um, as far as do they save it and, and have this five to 10 year plan? I just don't know. What I can tell you is they definitely use it to move money around. But they don't, I mean, that's just like, you know, that was kind of more the, like, Satoshi's idea was not know, right? that it was going to become this this world reserve currency and that and that you were going to spend your whole life stacking sure. sats. You know, it, it was that I want to be able to make quick payments. I want to be able to do this internationally. I want to be able to do this censorship free. Like, that was the idea. Yeah, and I still think that savings technology will ultimately be probably the biggest use case like in 50 years um i think it'll be the best wage and savings technology ever created but it's very volatile it moves up and down we have cycles and what's super clear is that even when the price bottoms out i mean we're taught what's that like 17k or something today it was 
last time I was on, it was like in the fifties or something like that. Um, yeah. Even when the price totally bottoms out, it reminds me a lot of the last bear market where it had been, it had gone from like almost 20 K to like three K like, like end of 2018, early 2019. Right. And, um, and I was, I was seeing the same kind of things. I was like, well, wait a second. Why isn't this thing dead? And why am I seeing so many people use it? And it's because it has these other features. So like, usually I'm known for like talking about the censorship resistant aspect of it for like activists. But to me, the um, cross-border payment stuff was uh, was really wild. My friend, uh, Jack Mahler's on stage, he announced this integration with a Nigerian, incredible Nigerian company called Bitnob. So using the Strike app, which is available to most Americans, I think, outside of New York, essentially, um, you know, and it's like a traditional fintech app, like, like cash app or whatever. But what's crazy is they now have this like send globally feature where you can just have US dollars, like a debit card type thing in your strike app. And you can just immediately send value to someone who has an M-Pesa account in uh, Kenya or an MTM mobile account in Ghana or to a Nigerian bank account. And it, it's, I've been testing it with people. It's like wild, like it, it literally works. And it's amazing. So, and a lot, a lot of like hardcore Bitcoin folks were giving us grief because they're like, well, this is like the fiat system. But I think what ends up happening is we have this uh, ultimate goal. Bitcoin is like freedom money. And along the way, we like realize it does other stuff too. Like we realize it monetizes uh, stranded energy. Like that's cool. Um, we also realize that it, uh, it, it can improve the fiat system. So, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll take it. But anyway, the global adoption stuff is really what I'm looking at for for next year um just just very exciting uh i mean i guess along those same lines i gotta ask you about uh el salvador because you've been you've been taking some heat for this you know just the you <laughs> yeah. know being being willing to call bukele uh i don't know if that's actually how it's pronounced Bu yeah bukele yeah yeah bukele so he is the the El I guess theoretically he is the El Salvadorian president though uh, I think you could debate if if that's the right term for him and and willing to put put words to some of the very autocratic things he's doing inside of that country which the the Bitcoiners don't want to hear so much because they mm -hmm. you know he's he's the first big world leader uh, of a size you know I, I mean he was the first actually before the Central African Republic to start holding Bitcoin on yeah. on the country's balance sheet basically. Well, he claims, yeah, there's a recent report going around where people are pointing out that like, uh, like essentially, like, we don't know. I mean, he says he's buying a Bitcoin a day. Like, what if he's not? What if he's just like saying that? Like, there, there, he has never provided any transparency. The interesting thing about Bitcoin is you could provide, you know, he could provide addresses and show that they have the funds. Um, he's declined to do so. So we'll have to see. But in general, I've tried to be nuanced about it. I don't think it's black and white. I think it's actually really cool that they adopted Bitcoin. I think it's really cool that they're giving a middle finger to the IMF. I think it's really cool that their tourism is like pretty inarguably from what I can tell going up. Um, I think it's it's really interesting what they're thinking about with regard to like basically making bonds off of renewable energy um, and also mining Bitcoin using like geothermal energy from their volcanoes, which like every, by the way, every Latin American country has these like uh, stranded geothermal reserves uh, all the way down to Chile along the Pacific coast. Um, I think all that stuff's really interesting. I try to give credit where credit's due. On the other hand, on the non-Bitcoin stuff, oh, and by the way, well, on the other hand, the Chivo app, I think has been a disaster. Like I, I don't ever, I mean, yes, it's cool that I guess the state is creating an app that connects to Bitcoin. I mean, I guess, and like, I guess the US government would never do that. But like, in general, it's not, it's paper Bitcoin. It's the surveillance machine. They could do money printing with it. I've always been skeptical of Chivo. But all the non-Bitcoin stuff I've been very worried about. My organization downgraded El Salvador to a competitive authoritarian regime. I mean, he basically is doing the Hugo Chavez thing where he stacked the Supreme Court. He... Um, got the new Supreme Court, which is full of his friends, to say that he could uh, have another term as president, which goes against the Constitution. Um, he's been you know, going after the previous attorney general who now had to flee the country, um, passing all kinds of restrictive laws with regard to media and reporting, and has, ha has had several like really, really intense state of emergencies, where part of the state of emergency is just sort of like you know, martial law type opacity over what the state is doing financially. So they haven't had to like report 
to the Congress on, uh, you know, what's happening because of this, these, these exceptional states or whatever, these exceptional states. So you've got tens of thousands of people being arrested in the due process. You know, of course, quote unquote, they're all gang, gang leaders or whatever, but number one, <laughs> definitely not. Like there's all kinds of testimonies, people who got scooped up, who <laughs> weren't part of gangs. Right. Um, but in general, I've been, yeah, I've been surprised that so many Bitcoiners have been like, it just seems like a very war on terror kind of like approach to public security. And this has nothing to do with Bitcoin. And I, it's, I've been so surprised to see so many Bitcoiners get who like Bitcoin all of a sudden, like, like completely as a stretch, start to opine about and support what Bukele is doing with public security and anti-terrorism and anti-gang stuff. Like what, what these are completely unrelated. Like, in fact, they're diametrically opposed. Like being pro Bitcoin means you're against the state you know, really interfering with a lot of certain things. But all of a sudden you've got all these people like being very pro, like an unaccountable like state, like it's just bizarre. So um, I don't know. Again, it's been nuanced. I continue to try and give them credit where they're, where credit's due. And remember it's a country that was devastated by US government intervention during the eighties. Um, like we created a lot of the gang problem actually when we sent a lot of the, these folks back um in, during the clinton administration uh you know it, it was a country that was only known for violent for like being the most dangerous place in the world or whatever and you know now it has some positivity to it so i think that's cool but I, i'm yeah i just continue to kind of be amazed by people who um who, who well because are, these are people to... their their allegiance is just like there's almost like a religious fanaticism about about bitcoin and and everything else is secondary mm -hmm. to that sure. so so any world leader who is pro bitcoin is is good by them. right well what's gonna happen what, what if putin is next is always what i say as like are you gonna be pro putin in that case uh it's very possible that that some of these dictators like really intense dictators come online and say well we've been using it for this or that um I could see what Putin then? making that heel turn. Yeah, honestly. Well, he he signed. A, well, it, it, what they're going to have, they're going to try to have their cake and eat it too, right? So Putin um, signed a law this summer, personally, uh, banning Bitcoin and cryptocurrency from being used as um, payments inside Russia. Now, you know, is the state mining using some of this, like you know, sort of new stranded gas and stuff that it can't export? Is it? Is it, you know, maybe using it to, are oligarchs using it to get money to Dubai? I mean, probably, but like the point is that like he does, he wants, he wants his insiders and the state to benefit, but he does not want the people to use it. And I don't, I, the interesting part is in the end, Bitcoin doesn't work like that. Like you can't like, you can't have it both ways. So I do think that this was my whole like Trojan horse theory. Like I, I do think that a lot of these states and regimes will, will, you know, have their own incentive for, for adopting Bitcoin in whatever way they think it helps them. Um, but they can't stop it from spreading through the population. So even in El Salvador, we see Bukele who adopted this thing because he thought it would make him famous and, and boost the image of his country, which, which I mean, kind of obviously did. did. I think he's, yeah. he's now the most prominent. I mean, most Americans couldn't name a single central American leader. A lot of them can name Bukele now. I mean, that, that worked for him. Um, but like, ironically, if Bitcoin adoption does actually expand throughout El Salvador, it gives him less control over the economy. So it's kind of interesting. So I've just been following that. We'll we'll have to see. But I do think again that you know Bitcoin is this international payment system and kind of potentially a new reserve currency is a really cool rebuke to the IMF uh, and the World Bank, um, which I, which I have recently written about, and I, I think that. Um, People underestimate the damage that these things, that these largely American-led institutions have done in the what we would call like you know poor countries or the third world. Yeah, so uh, we 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 definitely cannot get to all of uh, of of this incredible article that Alex wrote on uh, Bitcoin Magazine. You can find it. I'll link the uh, I'll link this article in the description. Disclaimer: the It's very very long. It's very very long. Um, <laughs> I'm actually and, I'm actually going to turn it into a book. It'll publish as a book. In Q2 of next year. There we go. Uh, yeah. uh perfect. Read read the book too. So yeah. I, I mean, but let's just let's just start here. Um, mm -hmm. what what does the IMF actually do? What is its what is its mission statement versus what it actually does? Because often those two things are diametrically opposed. 
Yeah, I mean, like, look, the IMF and the World Bank were both founded for a reason, and and in many in many regards, they 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 still do that. They still fulfill that reason today. So, in in simple terms, the IMF is is the uh, lender of international resort for countries. So, when a country goes bankrupt or basically has an export import crisis, where it's like importing a lot more than it's exporting, um, it'll it'll go to the IMF for a bailout. The World Bank is the largest development bank. So, if a country needs to build a dam or something, uh, or electrify a part of the country or try to like change agricultural production and they can't get private capital to pay for it. They can borrow from the world bank. And that's kind of what they were founded to do. They were founded really to focus on like war torn Europe and Japan originally, like it, they were Bretton Woods institutions that are created in New Hampshire in, in 44 at the end of world war two. Um, and from then until 1960, they largely focused on Europe and Japan. And since 1960, they've really focused on um, they've really focused on the developing world. Um, and and they again, like in in many cases, this is this is still what they do today, right? Um, but I mean, that's just a very small part of the story. Yeah. So let's. Uh, th I just think this this original anecdote that starts it is the a great. I mean, you know, if people people learn better via example so this uh the the it's this article's what seven seven parts so it starts with this mm -hmm. original part about the um the shrimp fields in uh in in bangladesh which i think and and their involvement in i just it's it's unbelievable <laughs> like you you have to you have to read it to believe it because it, it it sounds so the exact opposite of what these institutions should be doing which theoretically is helping these developing countries become developed right where to, to yeah. the point at which they can self-sustain but you they the, the imf and the and the world bank don't actually through their actions don't actually want places like bangladesh to self-sustain yeah i mean to put it simply they claimed to want to make these countries be independent but their the outcome of their policy has been to make them dependent so for example africa as a continent imports 85 percent of its food from the West and from other countries, which is just crazy because like it, it doesn't have to import any food. It could grow all of its own food. Um, but what ended up happening is that the US and other powers um, realized that to control the world, they, they needed to control agriculture uh, post-World War II. And they would essentially go into these countries, whether it be Bangladesh or Nigeria, et cetera, and they would take advantage of the fact that these countries were having a rough time financially and they would extend loans uh, to these countries, uh, which in many cases were high interest loans, et cetera, to begin with, meaning that the country would end up having to pay back more than what was loaned to them. A lot of people who own a credit card understand this concept, but they they seem to like forget that it applies in development economics. Like when a poor country borrows a billion dollars, they're going to have to pay back like a billion and a half, right? Uh, after all the interest payments are said and done um, historically. But we kind of tend to forget that. Uh, so not only do you have this like debt trap that they fall into, but the conditionality that that is imposed upon them to take the loan, uh, and normally there it would be like dispersed along you know uh, milestones of progress, uh, was that they had to sculpt or engineer their economy to to favor exports at the expense of consumption. So you can think of the IMF and World Bank as kind of squeezing. Um, these poorer countries and cutting their expenditures, almost like the way private equity takeover would look like for a company, trying to figure out how do we cut exp expenditures um, and and raise profits. That's that's kind of how they look at these countries, and they're like, how can we like reduce um, just local investment in healthcare and education, uh, subsidies on let's say food or energy, any of this stuff? Um, like let's get let's scrap all that and then let's devalue the currency. And let's change the way these countries farm from like, let's say farming for consumption, like cattle, rice, whatever. Um, let's let's modify that so that they're exporting things like cocoa or palm oil um, or uh, coffee or tea or rubber, et cetera, like stuff that like wealthy countries want. So, and what was really even more insidious is that in many cases, um, the the way that the these projects would develop were, were were with Western companies. So like this huge loan would go out to Ghana, 
okay, and it would force them to change their economy to cut back on on any social uh, welfare stuff so that people would like starve and like their GDP would decline and their life expectancy would go down. I mean, we're talking about a lot of people getting killed here in the 70s, 80s, etc. Um, and then w worse, uh, like they, they, they would end up uh, moving away from traditional agriculture to, to just sort of export stuff that, um, that, that, that we would, that we would want. Um, and this makes them dependent. And that, that was the goal. So that's what you've seen all across uh, the world. And, and why I got interested in it as a human rights advocate was, was because of their uh, affinity for dictatorships, because basically like if you have a democracy uh, people are going to like vote whoever passes a world, like an IMF, um, quote unquote, structural adjustment loan out of office because it makes conditions miserable for the average person. So if there's any sort of democracy, um, like that's not, that's not good for the IMF or World Bank because then people will push back. So they tended to favor, uh, dictatorships like historically. So, I mean, they never met a dictator they didn't like, I mean, they supported and it wasn't like Cold War only. It wasn't like they would only support right-wing dictators. They were supporting all kinds of left-wing ones too, Marxists in Ethiopia, Kochescu, Tito, um, et cetera, et cetera. So, I mean, they got very involved in Russia in the 90s. Um, and you basically have this thing of like uh, more and more and more debt given out to these countries to change them more and more and more to be dependent and to make them more and more indebted so they can't leave the system. So like, if you look at some of these charts I have in the article, it's wild. It's like the, it's like the, the debt, external debt of these countries grows exponentially from the early seventies to today. Um, so that they can never possibly pay back what they've borrowed. Um, and they're really stuck. There's not like, I don't have really a solution here. Like there isn't, I mean, the, the, the point of the article is just that we should like understand this, reflect on this and know that like in the West, like our prosperity um and our success is is of course yes it's due to like liberal values and democracy and property rights and entrepreneurship and all these great things that we like but it's also because we like stole all kinds of like uh time and wealth and resources from poor countries like and we just need to know we just need to acknowledge that i think i think that's very important so a couple couple things i mean the first thing mm -hmm. is very very simple layman's terms it is just mm -hmm. basically the developed world realized like we don't have enough space to 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 have all the agriculture that we need you know to grow all the things that we need yeah. to grow to get all the products that we need we have to mm -hmm. come up with a solution for this so yeah. essentially we are going to find a way to i mean really what it is is it's bribing we're, we're bribing yes. these developing yeah. countries to usually do, dictators uh, usually dictators yeah unaccountable right. dictators yeah so we, who we wouldn't by the way who wouldn't they wouldn't have to pay back the loan. So if you're like Marcos or whatever, or Suharto, you're taking the, or, you know, Mobutu, you're taking all these loans and you know, you're never going to pay them back. And you go back to the World Bank or IMF and say, we can't pay. And they say, instead of letting you default, which is really what should have happened, um, they say, don't, we'll just give you another loan, you know, because people need to remember that every loan that's extended to a developing country is an asset on the Western bank's balance sheet. And that bank does not want that asset to go to zero. So they'd rather just create another loan. And then that's why you see this lending grow and grow and grow. Yeah. So how does Bitcoin fix this, right? That's, that's the Bitcoin, <laughs> Bitcoin fixes this, right? That's the, that's, that's our, our rallying I mean, cry. It, it, it definitely drew my curiosity to the subject. I think that Bitcoiners are, are kind of, natively a little suspicious of these alphabet soup organizations, which I think is a really good suspicion to have. They tend to be um, malicious in some way. Um, I always, you know, grew up in my career, uh, you know, looking at the UN Human Rights Council, which which would always have like all kinds of dictators on it. And just today, Iran finally got removed from like the UN Commission on Women. It's just like crazy. Um, so I, you know, we're naturally suspicious of this stuff. But without Bitcoin, I never would have gone down this rabbit hole. I would have never learned about this. So I, I'm very grateful to it for teaching me this. But um, essentially, the idea is that uh, at a micro level in the 80s, if you were in Ghana, you had no escape. There was nothing, no way for you to like escape the crumbling infrastructure around you. You couldn't put your time and effort into another currency um, that 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 would allow you to to like at least stabilize or increase your purchasing power. Again, these IMF World Bank programs would like constrict the local economy like a boa constrictor, um, and like the average person would would have to work more for a thousand calories of rice. So put the currency aside, like the out outcome of these policies over 
20, 30 year periods of time um, was that the average person was working more hours to get the same thousand calories of rice. And this is all about wage deflation. And this is what was so important for us in the West. We, we To keep our living standards up and growing, we needed an external input. And that was cheap labor and goods from the periphery countries. And this is like, you know, something that I think Marxists and libertarians like would agree on. Like uh, Karl Marx wrote a lot about this, actually. So um, this is this is something that's been known for a long time. And wage deflation was the goal. And that's what the IMF and World Bank do through like austerity measures um, and, and through shaping economies in, in the way that they do in, in the way that they do it. But the point is that like in the 80s, no one had an escape. Today, people in Ghana can look, they can opt out. They can enter uh, into the Bitcoin economy. It allows them to interact with the world without any sort of barriers, allows them to save into something that at least, for, you know, in a 10 year period of time has been the best uh, performing asset ever. Um, so I think that's really cool. And I think that'll be really helpful over the next decade. At the macro level, that remains to be seen. I mean, my speculation is that eventually um, <clears throat> this big, big debt bubble, this sovereign debt bubble, which is the biggest bubble in the world, by the way, bigger than the dot-com bubble, bigger, bigger than the subprime bubble, bigger than the stimulus bubble. It's like the put that the IMF has on all the on this debt from all these countries. Like private companies and banks know that they can extend these loans and go into these countries and do business because they know the IMF will guarantee it if something goes wrong. So that is only possible because the US has had the reserve currency and we can print the money um, at no cost. It's paperwork to us. Um, so if that no longer is the case and we're living in a world that's more similar to a uh, I guess a gold standard in some ways, um, but we have a Bitcoin standard. Um, the thing is, we don't have traditional colonial colonialism anymore. So the gold standard era was like completely ruined by by violence and just brutal like brutalism, <laughs> like like warships going and you know pillaging people. We don't really have that so much anymore. So if we're all of a sudden to a world where politicians are more limited in what they can do, well, like next time Brazil asks for a thirty billion dollar bailout. Um, I don't like the US government's gonna have to be like a little more cautious about that. Okay. And I think what you're going to start seeing is the bank and the fund over time, if we did go into like a Bitcoin standard, they'd have to either like fold or which is what I hope they do. I mean, these institutions should be abolished. I mean, for what they've done, but they could change. And what they could start doing is, is co-investment, right? So to have a little more skin in the game, like they, they could actually be like equity partners in some of these projects. Um, and I, there's not, that's not like a, there's still issues with that, but I think it's better than the debt bondage model. Like, uh, I think it's better because then these institutions have more interest in these projects succeeding as opposed to just like, whatever, just give them a bunch of money and they're going to come back to us and we'll give them more money. Like, I think it's, it's a less of a Ponzi scheme and more of like something that's sustainable. So we'll just, we'll just have to see. But I think in the end, the other interesting part is that like as this thing maybe unwinds a little bit in the future, um, any country can, I mean, any country can generate the world reserve currency through energy like that it has w w without asking permission from the United States. Uh, today, the only way for these countries to get, like if you're Ghana the only or Bangladesh, the only way you can buy a tractor or fertilizer or whatever is by exporting to get dollars. You can't print a, the CDs in Ghana, the national currency. Those are not accepted on international markets. This is something a lot of people don't understand. Like America can just print dollars to buy anything it wants, right? Uh, sort of so can Japan, China, Europe to some extent, but most countries in the developing world can't do this. They have to sell stuff that we want, right? Like cocoa or cotton or whatever in Ghana's case. And then with those you know, gold with, with those uh, receipts in dollars, then they can buy stuff. Um, so if all of a sudden they could just generate some base level of uh, world reserve currency, just sort of passively through, through the energy, the very rich energy resources that all these poor countries have, they tend to have very strong energy resources that they can't really take advantage of. I think that's a really interesting world. Um, the world today is a world where one nation that has 4% of the population gets to determine the rules of money for everybody. And I continue to think that that's uh, problematic. So even in the depths of the bear market here, I'm like more bullish than ever. So <laughs> here we go. It's perfect. So it's a, I think that's a great way for us to to wrap it up. I could, couldn't be more bullish even when uh, the number doesn't always just continuously um, go up. All right. So I'm going to link 
this very long article in Thank the you. description of this podcast. Uh, what else should the people be looking out for? Yeah, just shout out. There's also, if you uh, don't like, I admit it's a slog to read. Um, there are, Guy Swan on Bitcoin Audible did a readout of it, if you like to listen to it instead. Uh, so that's available on Bitcoin Audible. And then I did a um, couple shows, like just diving really deep into this with Peter McCormick on what Bitcoin did and also with Preston Pish on the Investors Podcast. So people can check those out and they can look out for the book. Um, uh, yeah, next, uh, maybe Q2 of next year. Yeah. All right, there we go. Everyone, you can follow him on Twitter at Gladstein. You can uh, read his article that is going to become a book soon. You can listen to him on a uh, friend of this show, Peter McCormick's show, What Bitcoin Did. And we will be back next week. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. You might be right. It's simple, but something you almost never hear in politics today, with each side more concerned about scoring political points than solving problems. I'm Bill Haslam, a Republican. And I'm Phil Bredesen, a Democrat. We're former Tennessee governors, and we invite you to listen to our podcast, You Might Be Right. Join us and guests like Al Gore, Paul Ryan, Judy Woodruff, as we take on important issues facing our country. Listen and subscribe to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee.